This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus NIST updates, what is blockchain and how will it disrupt business, and the most common HIPAA breaches. This is episode 16. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so you can better protect your business and identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nawash Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at nawajtech.com. That's N-W-A-J-Tech.com. You guys know how I like to kick off the show each and every week. Patch Tuesday update. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to thank everybody who listened to this podcast again. Make sure you show us some love on Apple, Google, wherever you listen to this podcast. We really would appreciate any feedback you give us, even the negative stuff. If you have something negative to say, maybe I talk too fast. Some people do tell me that. Um, and, you know, just go in and show us some love. would really, really be appreciated. Also, go join the HIPAA Compliance Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search for Get HIPAA Compliance. Ooh, thankfully, you guys didn't catch that sneeze. Um, there's not a lot to report for Patch Tuesday just yet. Of course, Patch Tuesday is this coming Tuesday. Um, the only updates that were put out so far are Google Chrome updated to address a bunch of vulnerabilities. I think there was a total of 56 vulnerabilities. And they're also starting to roll out some new cookie features. So you should be on Google Chrome 80.0.3987.87. And then critical, um, I'm sorry, Cisco put out some some patches for some critical vulnerabilities, um, which we talked about on the CISA site. So um, you'll want to take care of those as well as soon as you can. So I didn't get any questions this week to address on the show, so we're going to hop right into the news. Uh, first up, Ashley Madison. This was reported on Forbes, and I think I talked about it Monday. Uh, Ashley Madison hack returns to haunt its victims. 32 million users now watch and wait. So-called extortion campaigns are on the rise. The usual methods are simple and highly effective. Spice a threatening email with some personal details, usually an email address, username, and password from a random data breach, then claim to have videos or photos which will be emailed to friends, family, and colleagues unless a Bitcoin ransom is paid, which should be the first indication that it's fake. The advice is to ignore those emails. The threats are empty, as I just said. Um, but what if the attacker did have the right kind of data which, with which to threaten victims? That's what has happened with the latest ex- sextortion campaign to hit the headlines. It appears that attackers have crafted a campaign around data pulled from the infamous Ashley Madison hack in 2015. I can't believe it's been five years already. Back then, hackers calling themselves the Impact Team stole 32 million records from users of the world's leading extramarital affairs site. As data sets go, this is one that's tailor-made for extortion. According to Vade Secure, the Ashley Madison breach is coming back to haunt users in the form of highly personalized extortion scam. 
The emails sent to the victims of the breach are littered with personal detail from breach itself. Given the nature of the site, these emails are highly personal and embarrassing and revisit a scandal that led to family breakdowns and even suicides in the immediate aftermath. The victims are given a limited amount of time to pay a Bitcoin ransom worth around $1,000. The demand is the password-protected PDF attached to the email, a document that has a unique QR code and additional details from the breach, all designed to force the victim to respond. In its January 31st report, Vade Secure says that in the last week alone, it has detected several hundred examples of the extortion scam, primarily targeting users in the United States, Australia, and India. Uh, I didn't know Ashley Madison was a worldwide thing. Um... So, I mean, this again just goes to show you, and, and I've seen in the past, so the the software we use to, the service we use to check to see if a, a client has been breached in the past, um, we'll come back and say what breach it was, and you'll see sometimes CEOs and C-level executives have been breached through the Ashley, Ashley Madison breach, and their information was included in that breach. And so I have to share this information with the client. Um, I mean, I I don't know. It's it's you you you're putting your foot in the fire if you go on sites like that because you never know what could happen, um, and you never know the damage it will cause because th- these type of things can cause a lot of damage in your personal life, and your in your professional life. Um, that being said. These emails are not uncommon. I've gotten these emails where they, you know, they claim to have personal details about me and threaten to release it to the public. And if I don't pay up, those emails are fake. Ignore them. They usually wind up in my spam folder, so I almost never see them anyway. The phishing or the phishing software catches it. Um, But if you get them, ignore them. Um, This was on law sites. This was on Monday I reported this, but... Um, so it's a little dated in the sense that it says ransomware attack hit three law firms in the last 24 hours. That was late last week. So in total, five U.S. law firms, three in the last 24 hours, have been among the companies and organizations targeted by a new round of ransomware attacks. In two of the cases, a portion of the firm's stolen data has already been posted online, including client information. So if that is not a case to secure your law firm even more, then I don't know what is. This according to Brad Callow, a threat analyst with MCSoft, a cybersecurity company that is also an associate partner in the No More Ransomware Project, an initiative between multiple law enforcement agencies and the private sector. Hackers have stolen data from at least five law firms using the threat of releasing the data to extort payment from the firms. Callow said in the two cases in which hackers already posted law firm data, they they published it on the clear web where it can be viewed by anybody and as you probably are aware you are now going to be in a lot of trouble with with the the bar association and and anybody that oversees law firms the hackers are using the so-called maze ransomware which we've talked about several times on this show which was the subject of a warning issued to companies earlier this month by the fbi earlier this week ars technica reported that victims of maze ransomware attacks have included a grocery chain a cpa firm and a college so no one is safe the hackers infiltrate a system. The hackers infiltrate systems using email with malicious attachment. Again, phishing, as ninety percent of all ransomware attacks do start. Callow said he does not know the exact nature of the emails being used against law firms, but he assumes they are being crafted in such a way that lawyers are likely to open them, or law firm staff. Their modus operandi is to initially name the companies they've hit on their website, and if they that doesn't convince the companies to pay. 
to publish a small of a small amount of the data as proofs. This makes sense, Callow said. The more data they publish, the more sensitive the data is, the less incentive an organization has to pay to prevent the remaining data being published. It's the equivalent of a kidnapper sending a pinky finger. If the or- That's an interesting analogy. If the organization still doesn't pay, the, rema- the remaining data is published sometimes on a staggered basis. This is the case with Southwire right now, and they were also hit with maze ransomware. So the Southwire, they demanded $6 million from Southwire, Southwire said no, and little by little, they continue to release data for them. Uh, this is on MSSP alert, kind of a, I mean, <laughs> kind of a scathing comment on my industry, MSPs, but I'm sharing it because it does highlight something that needs to be highlighted. Louisiana criticizes MSP industry's security practices, employs MSSP. So the difference, so you know, MSP is managed service provider, MSSP is managed service managed security and services provider i believe the the their focus is security um managed security services provider yeah um and the reason they did this is because they felt like msps were not doing their job so i'll read the the article many msps that is managed well they put managed it services provider are dropping the ball on cyber cyber security leaving elections open to the threat of cyber attacks louisiana secretary a state Kyle Ardon warned peer government leaders on January 31st. Ardon called out MSP security weaknesses multiple times during a meeting of the National Association of Secretaries of State, according to State Scoop. Ardon, the report says, alleged that many MSPs aren't properly emphasizing security to the government clientele and don't properly secure the remote monitoring and management software tools. He specifically pointed to MSPs that failed to activate two-factor authentication. I'm hoping at this point they all have, but I don't know. Amid the alleged MSP industry shortcomings are Dones statewide office leverages in MSSP for prevention and detection services. Louisiana's commitment to MSSP engagements is easily explained. The state has offered multiple ransomware and cybersecurity attacks across, has suffered, sorry, multiple ransomware and cybersecurity attacks across numerous municipalities and government agencies. And so that's true. Louisiana has been hit a couple times in the last year. Um, uh, New Orleans was hit, so th- that is true, and it is good possibility that whoever was helping them, MSP or whoever, did not have two-factor authentication turned on. However, the statement that says, uh, so I'm I'm ad-libbing now. The statement that says aren't properly emphasizing c- cybersecurity to their government clientele. I can tell you from experience that a lot of times you will say we need to do this, this, and that, and this is what it's going to cost, and the the business or in this case, the municipality will balk at it and say, no, we're not doing that. We can't afford it. And municipalities notoriously don't have a lot of money to spend, so they say, on on these types of things. And so if I go in and I say, you know, we need to do some phishing education, we need to turn on this kind of service and that kind of service, and they don't want to do it, um, some MSPs will walk away from it. Some of them, Some of them will not. And will take it because they want the income, and you now putting your reputation at risk. So um, there, and then there's some comment from Ryan Weeks, who's a CISO at Datto. MSP industry improve or face new regulations. Although the MSP industry has made some progress on the cybersecurity front, more progress is needed, according to Datto CISO Ryan Weeks. Datto is an MSP-focused provider of data protection, networking, IT monitoring, and business automation solutions. And we we are partnered with Datto. So if you're an MSP, you need to know thyself, know thy battlefield, and know thy enemy. 
Weeks told an MSSP alert during a PerchyCon 2020 conference last week in Tampa, Florida, organized by Perch Security. In MSP's work to gain that cybersecurity expertise, they must also work to offer a unified industry front against attackers, Weeks add. If the MSP industry doesn't make more progress on a unified security front, the industry could wind up facing new government regulations and compliance requirements, Weeks also warns. And I can see that happening. So I could definitely see the government stepping in, and it'll take some time, but the government might step in and say, well, this needs to happen, that needs to happen. You need to have these kind of certifications. As a matter of fact, I'm going to talk about something along those lines in a minute. Still weeks sees progress from vendors and MSPs alike. For instance, data rolled out mandatory two-factor authentication services to MSPs in January 2020, he notes. We'll share additional thoughts from our time with weeks soon. All right, um, on bleeping computer, new emo check tool checks if you're infected with Emotet. So we've talked a lot about Emotet. We even featured it uh, maybe two weeks ago or last week, I'm not sure, but um, Emotet is probably the most dangerous malware infection that's out there right now. And if we take ransomware out of the picture, this is probably the most dangerous. So a new utility has been released by Japan CRT CERT, Computer Emergency Response Team, that allows Windows users to easily check if they are infected with Emotet Trojan. Emotet Trojan was one of the most actively distributed malware that is spread through phishing emails and malicious Word document attachments. These emails pretend to be invoices, shipping notices, account reports, holiday party uh, invites, and even information from coronavirus in the hopes that you will be enticed or tricked into opening the attachment. So I'm going to stop right here and tell you, if you get an email and the subject line is something about the coronavirus, delete it. The CDC and other agencies are not proactively sending out uh, coronavirus alerts. Once installed, Emotet will utilize the infected computer to send further spam to potential victims and also download other malware onto the computer. Emotet is particularly dangerous as it commonly downloads and installs the TrickBot banking Trojan, which steals saved credentials, cookies, browser history, SSH keys, and more while it attempts to spread to other computers on the network. If the network is of high value, TrickBot will also open a reverse shell back to the Ryuk ransomware operators who will encrypt the network as a final payload. Due to the severity, it is important that victims quickly find and remove the Emotet Trojan before it can download and install other malware onto infected computers. Using Emotet to ch check for Emotet Trojan. When Emotet is installed by malicious attachment, it will be stored in a semi-random folder under local data app. It is semi-random because it will not use random characters, but rather a folder name built out of two keywords from the following list. And then there's a list of keywords here. I'm not going to go through the whole list. Um, as you can see, Emotet was installed under the symbol guild folder, which is a combination of the words from the list above. So symbol and then GUID. To check if you're infected with Emotet, you can download the Emotet utility from the Japan CERT GitHub repository. Once downloaded, extract the zip files. And so then there's instructions on how to, to run this tool. Um, but I think it's, it's quite useful for enterprise businesses, small business, all businesses, or anybody really, to just make sure you don't have Emotet existing on your network, on your devices, um, because it will cause a lot of damage if it's not taken care of, um, and it will continue to spread. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The only way we're going to stop ransomware is to not make it profitable for the people doing the ransomware attacks. So until that happens, 
then we're not going to see any improvement. And then if we're not doing anything to stop it, to stop the the profit from it, then we're we're just contributing to the continued success of ransomware attacks. And Emotet is not ransomware, but as you heard, it does as a final payload install of the Ryuk ransomware. On Cyware, these highly exploited vulnerabilities indicate organizations are still failing to apply patches. So six of the highly exploited vulnerabilities from 2019 were repeated from the previous year. All the repeated exploited vulnerabilities affect various Microsoft products, which is not exactly true as I'm going to go through the list. So it's interesting. This is a list. There's 10 list of commonly exploited flaws. It doesn't say they're the top 10, but it says the 10 of the 10 of commonly exploited flaws. And it's insane because as you're going to hear, these are not new. There's only one from 2019, that's number five on the list, and that's Microsoft Internet Explorer. And as I said in an Instagram post, the we should not be using Internet Explorer, and you should be applying the patches as soon as they roll out. So you have Internet Explorer on your computer, even though you should be using Edge at this point. Um, but you should be patching it, but not using it. Don't use it. Then we go back to 2018. and So 2018, there's one, two... Um, two flaws for Adobe Flash Player. So why are we using Flash Player? And another one for Microsoft Internet Explorer. And then one for Microsoft WinRAR. Then we have 2017 Microsoft Office, Microsoft Office. 2015 Microsoft Internet Explorer again. Oh, and I'm sorry, in 2017, another one for Internet Explorer. And in 2012, so we're going eight years back, we have one for Microsoft Office, which means you're using either Office 2007 or 2010. You're not, and we're in 2020, so you're not using the latest version of Office, and you're you're putting your your business, your personal data at risk because I'm sure eight years later, the exploit for Microsoft Office CVE 2012-0158, I'm sure is not a hard exploit to use. All right, last bit of news we have DOD to require cybersecurity certification from defense contractors. So as I mentioned earlier, you might get to see more regulation. Um, and here's an example of that. So for De Department of Defense contractors, they're going to be requiring a cybersecurity certification for anybody who's working with them. And this is on Bleeping Computer. The United States Department of Defense announced that defense contractors will have to meet a basic level of cybersecurity standards when replying to a government acquisition program's request proposal by 2026. So six, you have six years to get this, guys. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Framework version 1.0 was released on January 31st, and it is unified security standard from the Department of Defense. Cyber, cyber requirements for some, contract, some contractors will appear later this year, and by 2026, all new DOD contracts will come with a new CMMC, CMMC requirements. DOD's Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Ellen M. Lord, said, with the introduction of CMMC, the DOD wants to enhance the protection of supply chain, unify, un, supply chain unclassified information federal contract information, and controlled unclassified information. By increasing the defense industrial base subcontractors' cybersecurity readiness, 
The CMMC provides the Department of, of Defense with a straightforward mechanism designed to make it easier to certify the cyber readiness of large and small defense contractors using five levels of certification that focus on both cybersecurity practices and processes. So the article does link to the actual document um, for the CMMC. You can go check that out. It is, how many pages is this document? I don't think it was that big if I remember. Yeah, 28 pages. So go check that out. It is available for your reading pleasure if you so are inclined. Um, learn something. Learn what the Department of Defense, I mean, even if you don't contract to the Department of Defense, Department of Defense, then it's it's still a good thing to, to see what they're looking at because what they're looking at is what... Um, what um, the whole industry should be looking at. So here are the five levels that measure. So CMMC model with five levels measures cybersecurity maturity. So you have level one is performed basic cyber hygiene. Level two is documented intermediate cyber hygiene. Hygiene, And we should be documenting everything, everybody. Level three, managed good cyber hygiene. Level four, reviewed proactive, which is the, where we should be, proactive ma management, not reactive level five optimizing advanced and progressive so again go check that out and uh we'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that and that is going to do it for the news so let's jump into our hot topics in the first one is once again the nist so if you don't know what NIST stands for, it's National Institute of Standards and Technology. Now, they do a lot, not just in technology. They do not in just in the IT world. They also work with HHS on HIPAA stuff. And I actually was going to review one of the documents from NIST as it relates to HIP, the HIPAA security rule, um, and decided not to do it this week um, because it's a huge document. So I need to condense it somehow. But we're going to talk about it maybe next week. Um, but they do a lot in the technology world. So again, it's the National Cyber I'm sorry, the National Institute of Standard and Technology and that's NIST, NIST. So NIST releases draft guidelines to curb the ransomware epidemic. So you can see there are groups now that are working to sort of mitigate the the problem with ransomware. And I don't know what is going to work again as I've said until we can make it not profitable for the attackers it's going to continue. Um the first data on the first draft of data and the first draft on data integrity and protection is a guide to better identify and protect IT assets from data integrity attacks. The second document shares advice on improving the detection and mitigation of ransomware attacks. Recently, the National Institute of Standards and Technology unveiled practice guidelines to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability that's known as the CIA triad of data in an enterprise. NIST's Cyber, National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence developed the two draft practices guidelines, which are linked in the article. This article is on Cyware. Modern ransomware strains can move around the system while interacting with applications such as Microsoft Active Directory and encrypting backward, ba uh, backups. Today's attacks prompt authorities to look at the entire network and enterprises and understand what their threat represents. NIST is, in its draft, has attempted to address current issues, including how to implement vulnerability management as well as network protection and awareness throughout the entire IT infrastructure. 
So the, the NIST draft guidelines were released in a view of increasing threats from ransomware and the adoption of new tactics by threat actors in the last couple of years. The drafts offer updated advice and best practices on how to minimize the impact of a ransomware attack. Though NIST has earlier developed ransomware-related guidance, the, the present drafts focused on the entire life cycle of a data integrity attack. It includes steps on how to implement backups tied to secure storage capabilities, use network protection, and inventory assessment. So that's a, a, a really valid point. I know a CPA who was using, you know, the the external hard drive connected to USB to their computer to to as a backup, which is a good secondary backup, I guess, um, just because it's easily to re it's easier to restore from. But when they were hit with ransomware, and that drive was also encrypted. Uh, it also suggests how and what policies to create a, to help ensure endpoints are safeguarded. NIST researchers have reportedly referred to significant ransomware incidents from the past few years, including the WannaCry attacks of 2017 to map out protection tips for enterprises. So you may remember the WannaCry um, outbreak in 2017. The U.S. didn't really get it too bad, but the rest of the world did. You remember the resolution was somebody registering a domain? But anyway, an overview of practice guidelines. The first draft on data integrity and protection is a guide to better identify and protect IT assets from data integrity attacks, including ransomware. It also contains two key insights, a reference design that acts as a technical blueprint for action items and a guide to commercially available technologies that create more robust security controls for a network. There's a how-to guide on implementing best practices as well. The second document shares advice on improving the detection and mitigation of ransomware, along with other security issues within their infrastructure. It indicates how integrity monitoring, event detection, reporting capabilities, vulnerability management, and mitigation and containment can be implemented within the IT infrastructure. So I, I have um, downloaded the PDFs and will be reviewing them. You should also do the same at some point because it will again it will help you strengthen your um standing within the technology world there are not small documents there are very large documents so let's see i'm looking at one now it's 521 pages and the other one is didn't open for me oh this is 565 pages so you're looking at 1100 pages of of reading so it's not light reading but um Check it out nonetheless. Um, and of course, all this will be linked in the show notes, so you'll have access to it. Um, moving along, we have I have a couple of articles from ZDNet. I did not get a chance to do a blog post this week. It's been a, a crazy week for me. Um, so we're going to use some content from ZDNet. First one, how blockchain will disrupt businesses. So first of all, let's define blockchain. Blockchain is... Um, a growing list of records that they that are called blocks that are linked using cryptography. Each block contains a cryptographic hash of the previous block, a timestamp and transaction data. By design, a blockchain is resistant to modification of data. That is the Wikipedia definition. Blockchain has the potential to rewrite the economy and change the balance of power across industries. It also has specific uses for enterprise. Um Research blockchain must overcome hurdles before becoming a mainstream technology. A recent Tech Republic premium poll shows that while 87% of respondents think blockchain will positive, positively impact their industry, only 10% actively use it. And, and 
So I'm going to tell you I don't actively use it myself at this point. But we like blockchain. At least that's the takeaway from a recent Tech Republic premium survey where the majority of respondents, 87%, stated that blockchain will have a positive effect on the industry and 27% indicated a very positive effect. However, thinking something and actually doing it are two different actions. Despite the enthusiasm for the technology, only 10% of the respondents actively use blockchain at their company. Blockchain appears at 13% of strategic roadmaps for respondents organizations compared to 7% in 2018. So which industries will blockchain most likely impact? IT and technology was chosen by 58% of respondents with professional services, including finance, insurance, legal, and consulting, a close second at 56%. Rounding out the top five cited industries were logistics and transport, healthcare, and retail and wholesale. What needs to happen for a widespread adoption of blockchain? Two-thirds of respondents indicated that the need for a clearly stated business use case, a cryptocurrency operated by government entity was suggested by 35% of the respondents, while company-controlled cryptocurrency was favored by 20%. And then there is a, well, it says the infographic below, but there's, oh, there's a link to an info, infographic. With blockchains and business, where are we now? Predictions for the next decade. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a link to an article. There is no, it says there's an infographic, but there is not one. Um, so the point is, I think more, there needs to be more understanding of what blockchain can do. And I think that's where we're at right now. There needs to be a better understanding among business owners and even those in technology of what it can do and how it can be utilized to benefit of the business and of our personal lives. And that's that's um, that remains to be seen. You're going to see it. It is going to continue to grow, though. Um, next up, we have also on ZDNet. What's in your network? Shadow IT, and you. I don't know if you've ever heard the the term shadow IT and shadow IoT challenge technology sensibilities. So shadow IT has been around for a little while. But Shadow IT is something a little is a little newer. A couple of years ago, IoT that is. A couple of years ago, a survey found most CIOs thought they had roughly 30 to 40 apps running within their enterprises. But researchers at Semantic estimated that the average enterprise actually had at least 1,516 applications. So that's a huge gap, a number that has doubled over a three-year period. So what that means is, you get a if you get a laptop from your biz, your the company you work for. And you have the applications you require, let's say, you know, Microsoft applications, um, a couple of internal applications you need for your job and so forth. But then you install an application on the laptop because it helps maybe do your job a little easier or it helps you to maybe you just install Pandora or something, you know, whatever. Um, Those are those are the shadow IT apps. Those are the applications that the infrastructure, the business might not be aware of. And it becomes a problem when there's a vulnerability. It's not the CIOs are naive. It's just that shadow IT is a difficult thing to measure since employees pull down apps outside the official channels and off-budget sheets. To some degree, it's even purposely overlooked, condoned, or even encouraged as employees need the right tools to do their jobs, and IT can't always be there. Now it appears CIOs are battling shadow IT on two fronts. There's the user-initiated apps in clouds, and there's something more insidious, shadow IoT. User-initiated shadow IT continues unabated. It may be hard to measure shadow IT, of course, and a one-vendor, one-password recently went outside of enterprises surveying a representative sample of 2,119 U.S. adults who work in an office with an IT department. 
The survey finds 64% of the respondents report they were, that they have created at least one account in the past 12 months that their IT department doesn't know about. For close to one-third, 32%, this was one shadow account, while 52% report creating between two and five accounts that their IT department doesn't know about. For 16%, the tally exceeded five accounts. Security is often an afterthought with passwords shared between end users in an informal fashion. The use of shadow IT by business end users has mixed benefits since security issues abide. They may be empowering and productivity enhancing. However, IoT may not be so forgiving. So if you don't know, IoT is Internet of Things. Um, those are like smart light bulbs and smart refrigerators and your Alexa and your uh, Google Home, things like that. And we're just starting to comprehend the scope of it. Research from Infoblox shows that most enterprises, 78%, had more than 1,000 connected devices on their corporate networks in 2019. This may include laptops or tablets supplied or managed by the company. More than a quarter, 28% of respondents reported having 1,000 to 2,000 devices connected, while almost half, 48% of organizations, have between two and 10,000. About 80% of IT leaders reveal that they have identified shadow IT device, IoT devices such as unauthorized wireless access points. Oh, that's another big one. I've seen that in almost every job I've held over the last 20 years. Connected to their infrastructure, at least 46% have discovered up to 20 shadow IoT devices on their networks over the past year. And more than a quarter, 29% of organizations saw more than 20, some saw as many as 50 IoT devices present a huge attack sur surface. Recently, researchers at Checkpoint identified smart light bulbs, I just mentioned that, which are likely to be installed in mass with little oversight from IT managers as, as an easy point of entry for hackers. So we reported that on the the Proactive IT Cybersecurity Daily yesterday um, it, that, that there was a vulnerability discovered in those. It appears most organizations are taking the risk very seriously and as a result have put policies in place to safeguard against external threats. 89% at least have some type of security policy in place for personal IoT devices connected to the network. The authors of the Infoblox report also suggest under, understand the changing ecosystem because the risk ecosystem is changing at such a rapid pace. Organizations must change their security habits to match. IT managers must stop and consider the wider changing needs of the business. Rethinking the approach to network security will ensure organizations are always one step ahead of cyber threats. So as an example, let's say that you do have smart light bulbs in your business. They need to be segmented. You could just start with that. IoT devices should be segmented. If they're being if you know they're there. If you if they're not there, then that's where the policies come in place and you need to address it and nip it in the bud, so to speak. All right, that wraps up our news. We're going to move on to our HIPAA education for the week. All right, let's get into our HIPAA education piece. And this week we're going to talk about the most common HIPAA violations you should be aware of. And the reason I chose this this week is because if there's some awareness, then you'll have an idea of what to look for in your environment to help you stay HIPAA compliant. Um, so here's the 10 most common HIPAA violations. Number one, snooping on healthcare records. Accessing the health records of patients for reasons other than those permitted by the privacy rule. Treatment payment and healthcare operations is a violation of patient privacy. 
Snooping on healthcare records of family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and celebrities is one of the most common HIPAA violations committed by employees. And we've talked about a few of those. Probably one of the most popular ones was Jason Pierre-Paul uh, a few years ago when he um, he blew up a firework in his hand. Um, but th- it does happen quite a bit. Um, University of California, Los Angeles Health System was fined 865000 for failing to restrict access to medical records. The healthcare provider was investigated following the discovery that a physician had accessed the medical records of celebrities and other patients without authorization. Dr. Huping Zhu accessed the records of patients without authorization 323 times after learning that he would soon be dismissed. Dr. Zhu became the first healthcare employee to be jailed for HIPAA violation and was sentenced to four months in federal prison. Number two, failure to perform an organization-wide risk analysis, and I see this a lot. Failure to perform an organization-wide risk analysis is one of the most common HIPAA violations to result in financial penalty. If the risk is not performed regularly, organizations will not be able to determine whether any vulnerabilities to the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of PHI exist. Risks are therefore likely to remain unaddressed, leaving the door wide open to hackers. HIPAA settlements with covered entities for failure to conduct an organization-wide risk assessment include Oregon Health and Science University $2.7 million settlement for lack of enterprise-wide risk analysis, CardioNet $2.5 million for an incomplete risk analysis and lack of risk management processes, Cancer Care Group $750,000 settlement for failure to conduct an enterprise-wide risk analysis, in Leahy Hospital and Medical Center, 850000 settlement for failure to conduct an organization-wide risk assessment with other HIPAA violations. Number three, failure to manage security risk lack of risk management process, kind of an extension of number two. Uh, performing a risk analysis is essential, but it could not... But it is not just a checkbox item for compliance. Risks that are identified must then be subjected to risk management process. They should be prioritized and addressed in a reasonable reasonable time frame. Knowing about risk to PHI and failing to address them are one of the most common HIPAA violations penalized by the Office of Civil Rights. And here's some of the settlements. Alaska Department of Health and Human Health and Social Services $1.7 million, University of Massachusetts Amherst, 650000 Metro Community Provider Network, 400000 in Anchorage, Community Mental Health Services, 150000 What is going on in Alaska? Um, so I'm going to tie it up a little bit. So you do the risk analysis, you find the risks, then you manage and fix them, and then you have to do another risk analysis. So it's, you're not done there. Failure to enter into HIPAA-compliant business associate agreement. We talk about this quite a bit, don't we? The failure to enter into a HIPAA-compliant business associate agreement with all vendors that are provided with or given access to PHI is another of the most common HIPAA violations. Even when business associate agreements are held for all vendors, they may not be HIPAA-compliant, especially if they have not been revised from the Omnibus final rule. And we've talked about the Omnibus in another episode. I will link it in the show notes. Notable settlements for those HIPAA violations, Raleigh Orthopedic Clinic, Pennsylvania, or PA of North Carolina, 750000 settlement for the failure to execute a HIPAA-compliant business associate agreement. North Memorial Health North Memorial Healthcare of Minnesota, $1.55 million settlement for failing to enter into a BAA with a major contractor with other HIPAA violations. Care New England Health System, 400000 settlement for failure to update business associate agreements. Insufficient EPHI access controls. The HIPAA security rule requires covered entities and business associates to limit access to EPHI to authorized individuals. The failure to implement 
appropriate EPHI access controls is also one of the most common HIPAA violations and one that has attracted several financial penalties. Those include Anthem was fined $16 million for access control failures and other serious HIPAA violations. Memorial Healthcare System, $5.5 million for insufficient EPHI access controls. Tax, Texas Department of Aging and Disability Services, $1.6 million for risk analysis failures, access control failures, and information system controls monitoring failures. University of California, Los Angeles Health Systems, 865000 for failure to restrict access to medical records. Pagosa Springs Medical Center, $111,400 for failure to terminate access to EPHI after an employee termination and a lack of business associate agreement. Failure to use encryption or equivalent measure to safeguard EPHI portable devices, and we've talked about this extensively too. One of the most common methods of preventing data breaches is to encrypt PHI. Breaches of encrypted PHI are not reportable security incidents unless they, the key to decrypt data is also stolen. Encryption is not mandatory under HIPAA rules, but it cannot be ignored. If the decision is taken not to use encryption, an alternative equivalent security measure must be used in its place. Recent settlements for failure to safeguard PHI. Children's Medical Center of Dallas, $3.2 million. Civil monetary penalty for failing to take action to address known risks, including the failure to use encryption on portable devices. Catholic Healthcare Services of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, 650000 for failure to use encryption, the failure to conduct an enterprise-wide risk analysis, and to manage risk. If you do the risk analysis, then you find the devices that are not encrypted, you encrypt them, you're managing the risk. So you see how those all tie together, right? Exceeding the 60-day headline for issuing breach notifications, this happens so often. The HIPAA breach notification rule requires covered entities to issue notifications of breaches without unnecessary delay and certainly no later than 60 days following the discovery of a data breach. Exceeding that time frame is one of the most common HIPAA violations which has seen two penalties issued this year. So Presence Health was penalized $475,000 and Copilot Provider Support Services $130,000 settlement with New York Attorney General for delayed breach notifications. Um, I think it was Presence Health. I'm not 100% sure, but one uh, one covered entity was going back and forth with who actually needed to be notified, and that's why it took them so long. Um, impermissible disclosures of protected health information. Any disclosure of protected health information that is not permitted under the HIPAA privacy rule can attract a financial penalty. This violation category includes disclosing PHI to patients, employer, potential disclosures following the theft of or loss of unencrypted laptop, computers, careless handling of PHI, disclosing PHI unnecessarily, not adhering to the minimum necessary standard, and closures of PHI, disclosures of PHI after patient authorizations have expired. And here's the list of some of those penalties. Memorial Harriman Health System, $2.4 million for disclosing a patient's PHI in a press release. New York Presbyterian, $2.2 million penalty for filming patients without consent. Massachusetts General Hospital, $515,000 for the same thing. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center, $387,000 for careless handling of PHI, disclosure of patients' HIV status to their employer. Brigham and Women's Hospital, $384,000 for filming patients without consent. Boston Medical Center, uh, $100,000 for filming patients without consent. Improper disposal of PHI. This just, We just talked about one of these the other day. 
When physical PHI and ePHI are no longer required and retention periods have expired, HIPAA rules require the information be securely and permanently destroyed. For paper records, this should involve shredding or pulping and for ePHI degaussing, securely wiping or destroying the electronic devices on which the ePHI is stored to prevent impermissible disclosures. Parkview Health, 800000 for a failure to securely disclose of paper records containing PHI. Cornell Prescription Pharmacy, a pharmacy got fined. 125000 for proper disposal of PHI. Filefax Inc., 100 for defunct business over improper disposal of medical records. Denying patients access to health records exceeding timescale for providing access. We've talked about this one. The HIPAA rule provides gives patients the right to access their medical records and obtain copies on request. This allows patients to check their records for errors and share them with other entities and individuals. Denying patient copies of their health records, overcharging for copies, or failing to provide those records within 30 days is a violation of HIPAA. While this is not one of the most common HIPAA violations to attract a financial penalty, OCR has stated it will be cracking down on on this aspect of noncompliance in 2019. It's now 2020. There may have been one or two cases this year. I'm not sure. Um, there's one listed here, Signet Health of Prince George County, 4.3 million penalty for denying patients access to their medical records. Um, common HIPAA violations by healthcare employees. Snooping on healthcare records is a fairly obvious HIPAA violation and one that all healthcare employees who have received HIPAA training should know is a violation of their employee policy and HIPAA rules, and yet it happened at least three or four times last year. Other common HIPAA violations often come as a result of misunderstanding about HIPAA requirements, while each of these common HIPAA violations affect far fewer number of patients than the above violations, they can still cause a significant amount of harm to the patients involved and to their employer. They can also result in disciplinary action against the employee, Responsible, including termination, and in most cases, that's exactly what happens. Listed below, and some of them have seen jail time now. Listed below are some of the common HIPAA violations committed by healthcare employees. So I'm just going to skim these: emailing ePHI to personal email accounts and, remo- and removing PHI from a healthcare facility, leaving portable electronic devices and paperwork unattended, releasing patient information to unauthorized individual, releasing patient information without authorization, disclosures of PHI to third parties after expiration of the unauthorization. Impermissible disclosures of patient health records, downloading PHI onto unauthorized devices, and providing unauthorized access to medical records. So those should give you an idea of what to look for in your environment and to make sure that you're not um, putting your healthcare practice at risk and you know causing undue harm to your practice and to your patients. Again, it is about patient care, not about the dollar. It's about patient care. And we're going to talk about our HIPAA breaches next. All right, it's time for the breach report. We have, uh, I believe there were seven total this week reported. So let's just go through the list. No particular order. Village Center of Village Center for Care, DBA, Village Care Rehabilitative and Nursing Center, VRNC and Village Senior Services Corporation, DBA, Village Care Max, VCMX, VC Max, have fallen victim to a business email compromise attack. BEC attacks involve the impersonation of an executive, either using the executive's genuine email account, compromised in a previous attack, or by spoofing the executive's email address. An unauthorized individual pretending to be a member of the executive team requested sensitive information on VRNC patients and VC Max members. 
Believing the request to be legitimate, the employee responded and provided the information as requested. VC Max and VRNC were alerted to a potential BEC attack on or around December 30th, 2019. The investigation confirmed the request was not genuine and sensitive information on VRNC patients and VC Max members had been impermissibly disclosed. The information sent via email included the names of Medicaid ID numbers of 2,645 VC Max members and the first and last names, dates of birth, insurance provider names, and insurance ID numbers of 674 VRNC patients. There have been no reports of misuse of personal information, but all affected individuals individuals have been advised to be vigilant and check accounts, credit reports, and explanation of benefits statements for signs of fraudulent activity. VC Max and VRNC are reviewing and enhancing their policies and procedures to prevent further attacks of this nature in the future. 1,860 individuals impacted by phishing attack on Phoenix Children's Hospital. Email accounts of seven employees. Seven is a lot of employees to be fished. That means there is no phishing program in place there. A Phoenix Children's Hospital have compromised have been compromised as a result of targeted phishing campaign between September 5th and September 20th of 2019. Upon discovery of the breach, a leading computer forensic firm was engaged to investigate investigate the extent of the breach. The hospital learned on November 15th that compromised accounts containing the PHI information of 1,860 current and former patients, which may have been viewed or obtained by attackers. The accounts were found to contain patient names, personal information, and some individuals' limited health information and social security numbers. On January 14th, Phoenix Children's Hospital started notifying affected patients by mail, complimented credit monitoring, and identity theft protection services have been offered to patients whose social security numbers were potentially compromised. We have, on November 21st, 2019, Fondin Orthopedic Group, an association of private orthopedic surgeon surgery practitioners in Houston and surrounding areas experienced a cyber attack that affected certain parts of its IT system. In a substitute breach notice posted on its website, the incident was described as malware attack that damaged the medical records of certain patients. Prompt action was taken to contain the infection and its symptom systems were restored. However, the medical records corrupted by the malware could not be recovered and have been permanently lost. The corrupted records, including Patient name, address, phone number, health insurance information, and diagnosis and treatment information. All patients affected by the incident were current or former patients of Dr. K. Matthew Warnock. Third-party forensic as third-party forensic investigators were engaged to assist with the investigation and found no evidence of unauthorized data access or exfiltration of data. Fondren Orthopedic Group is reviewing data security policies and procedures and will be enhancing its security protocols to improve resilience to malware attacks. Affected patients have been notified and informed that they need to complete new patient forms and supply details of their medical histories when they next visit Dr. Warnock. The cyber attack has been reported to HHS OCR. The breach summary shows up to 30,049 patients have been affected. And right here in good old Connecticut, Access Health Connecticut notifies 1,100 about unspecified data breach. So Access Health CT, the health insurance marketplace in Connecticut, has notified approximately 1,100 consumers that some of their PHI was exposed in a data breach. In its substitute breach notice, Access Health CT apologizes for any convenience caused by the breach and said affected individuals have been offered free access to services to help them protect their personal information. The breach notice did not contain the nature of the breach when it, when it occurred nor the types of information that were compromised. Notice states several 
several efforts to improve security are already in place with longer term initiatives initiatives planned regarding system changes and more frequent information IT security training and to improve data protection and security awareness. And in another one in Connecticut, Manchester Ophthalmology in Connecticut has experienced a cyber attack in which the attackers may have gained access to patient information. The eye care provider became aware of cyber attack on November 25th, 2019. When employees noticed unusual activity on the network, assisted by third-party technology firm, it was determined later that day that hackers had gained access to its systems and attempted to deploy ransomware. Access was first granted, first gained to the network on November 22nd and continued until November 25th. Remote access was rapidly terminated before information was encrypted. Well, that means they had three days on the system, so I don't know, maybe amateur hour for the ransomware attackers. The investigation found no evidence to suggest any patient information was accessed or downloaded by the attackers, but during the investigation it was determined that certain patient information had not been backed up and could not be recovered. The types of data lost included names, patient-created medical histories, and details of the care those patients received at Manchester Ophthalmology. Patients have been advised to exercise caution and monitor their accounts and explanation of benefit statements for any sign of fraudulent use of their information. Manchester Ophthalmology has provided further training to employees to ensure the proper backup of all information. Breach report submitted to the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights indicates 6,846 patients were affected by the breach. United Healthcare alerts patients about 2019 data breach on January 1st. January 31st, 2020, the Minnetonka, Minnesota Health Insurer, United Healthcare, announced it was the victim of a data breach in 2019 in which the private information of some of its customers in South Carolina was potentially compromised. United Healthcare was notified about the data breach in December 10th, 2019, and, deter- and determined that at some point between January 30th and November 13th, an unauthorized individual gained access to the health information and s- of certain members through its member portal. Only members' first name, last names, health plan information, and medical claims data was compromised. United Healthcare said it is assisting with law enforcement investigation, and steps have been taken to prevent further breaches of this fu- of this nature in the future. The HHS Office of Civil Rights portal indicates 934 individuals were affected. 2,713 individuals informed of Cook County health mailing error. We've been seeing a lot of mailing errors lately, too, so... Um, out, uh, Chicago, Illinois-based Cook County Health has started notifying 2,713 individuals that some of their protected health information was sent to a third-party vendor in error. The information related to individuals participating in Keeping It Light, hashtag Keeping It Light, study that was sent to a vendor who was due to assist with the mailing study information. The list of study participants, which was limited to names, addresses, and email addresses, was sent before a business associate agreement was in place. So there's where your your fine is probably going to come into place. A business associate agreement confirms that a vendor satisfactory that a vendor agrees to implement safeguards to ensure the privacy and security of any information without the BA satisfactory assurances that those safeguards were in place but had not received by Cook, but had not been received by Cook County. Action has now been taken to ensure similar errors are prevented in the future. Of course, a little too little too late. So that is going to do it for the breach report. And that is going to do it for this week's episode of the Proactive IT Podcast. Until next week, everybody stay secure.